Uh, from time to time it occurs to me that I might uh, fund my uh, retirement by writing a book uh, called The Things They Don't Teach You in Theological College. And uh, one of the things I discovered when I became a, a pastor, uh, one of the things they didn't tell me was that whenever you become a pastor, people try to sell you things. And I wasn't really uh, prepared uh, for that. They tried to sell you everything from church furniture through uh, to stationery. Uh, on one occasion, I received a, a meal offering me uh, anointing oil, and uh, that was one of the, the more uh, unusual uh, things I received. Well, why would I need anointing oil? Uh, well, as the ad went on to tell me, anointing oil was an important part of Christian practice, uh, and this particular oil was particularly significant because it was made up of, of biblical ingredients, uh, such as frankincense and myrrh. And it was from Israel. Um, they would even throw in a ram's horn to carry it in, uh, just for uh, an added 150 pounds. Well, if anointing oil doesn't uh, do it for you, how about a Christian diet? Uh, there are many Christian diets. I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar uh, with that, such as weight loss God's way. Uh, well, what's that? Well, it's a weight loss program which, to quote, puts an emphasis on permanent weight loss through partnering with the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you would like to meet your guardian angel. Uh, ever wondered how you can meet your guardian angel? Uh, well, there's a whole wiki-how page dedicated to meeting your guardian angel. The first thing seemingly you need to work out is which religion you are. Uh, because different religions have different views of your guardian angel, so you need to start, start there. Or perhaps you would settle for learning to prophesy with accuracy. Uh, seemingly that starts by putting on your, your prophetic garments. Or maybe you want to learn how to raise the dead. Uh, well, you need faith for that, and of course you need to buy the book uh, as well. The world that we live in uh, is not so very different from the world of first century Colossae. For the, the Christians Paul addresses in Colossians have found themselves unsettled by new teachings introduced to them, teachings that offer to raise them to a level of spiritual experience and understanding that they haven't known before, teachings that promise fullness and freedom, uh, teachings that promise knowledge of powers and angels, uh, teachings about the techniques that you can employ of self-denial that will help you uh, develop uh, in, the, in the faith. Things that are so much more advanced than anything that the ordinary rank-and-file Colossian Christian uh, has heard about. And we can understand the, the appeal, can't we, of that type of, of teaching. For as Christians, we do hunger after a sense of the reality of, of the things of God. There's something appealing to us about the promise of more. But it also appeals to another side of our nature, uh, that we love, we love shortcuts. Where, as Jay Adams says, we want somebody to give us three easy steps to godliness, and we'll take them by next Friday and be godly. That sounds much more appealing than Eugene Peterson's description of the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. However, Paul's great message to the Christians in Colossae is that this teaching that offers them extras is of absolutely no value to them. There's no value to them because they already have everything they need or could want in Christ. 
One of his key statements here in the letter in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. They don't need extras because in Christ they already possess everything they need. Well, so far Paul has been reminding the the Colossians of how their lives have already been transformed by the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 6, he tells them that the gospel has been bearing fruit among them since the day they heard and truly understood God's grace. He's reminded them in verse 7 of the, the authenticity of the message that they have received. This message of Christ and the apostles, it is their message. He's also reminded them in those wonderful words uh, that we read together last week in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, of the, the great salvation that they have received, of how God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He lo- loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." They've received full salvation. There's nothing more to be added. But then Paul does something unusual, or that we might find unusual, something that isn't clear in our English translations, but is more evident than the Greek. From verses 15 through to 20, he bursts into song. I was a bit disappointed William didn't sing these verses this morning uh, instead of reading, but that's what he does. He, he bursts into, into song. It's a hymn that's profoundly theological, uh, not kind of that dry-as-dust theology that we sometimes think about, but it's theology of a heart and mind that's filled with a sense of glory and wonder at the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation. And therefore, when Paul thinks about these things, he cannot help but but burst and overflow with this song of praise. Whether it's a song of his own creation or an existing song, commentators disagree, but it is this song, this hymn of praise to God. And the hymn has two key ideas in it. The first of these is that it focuses on Jesus' relationship with the creation writes in verse 15, He that is the son of the previous verse, He is the image of the invisible God. What a remarkable statement. That God who is invisible, God whom no one has seen or can see, He is revealed in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. The word Paul uses here, translated image, is the Greek word icon, from which, of course, we get our word icon. But when we think of an image, say a painting or a photograph, we think simply in terms of likeness. However, the Greek idea was that an icon was something that shared in the reality of the original. It doesn't merely bear resemblance to the original, it shares in the essence of the original. When we look at our our families, we often see family resemblances, the the blue eyes, the the red hair, the big nose, whatever it might be. And we know those resemblances, they aren't purely coincidental. We know we have resemblances in our families because we share 
the DNA, the same DNA. And this is what Paul is saying here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has, if you like, the divine DNA. People sometimes say, well, if only God would make himself clearer. Well, Paul is saying here, God cannot make himself any clearer. For the invisible God has put on human form and lived among us. In Jesus, we see the invisible God made visible. Indeed, as Clement of Rome, one of the early church fathers, wrote, we ought so to think of our Lord Jesus Christ as of God. That's a huge statement about Jesus. We ought to think of Jesus just as we think of God. A huge statement, but one the New Testament repeats time and time again in various ways. Jesus is God in human form and has walked among us. Jesus himself said in John 14 and 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Elsewhere, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the great distinctive of the Christian faith, that Jesus is God. One of the the features of the last half century or so has been the efforts made by members of various faiths to show that really all religions are just the same. That really we're all just seeking the same divine, but we're we're traveling by different routes, or we're going up different paths to the same mountaintop. But as people have got together to discuss these things and thrash out the details, time after time this quest has stumbled at this one point, that in all the world's religions, Jesus is unique. For he alone is the God-man. He alone is the image of the invisible God. The author Michael Green says, So much religious talk is like soap in the bath. You can't get hold of it. But we can get hold of the message of the gospel. It is clear. For it's utterly dependent upon Jesus. Who he is and what he has achieved. This morning, if you think that all faiths are are just the same, that it doesn't matter what you believe, that that ultimately no one can tell you the, the right way to God well then you need to stop and think again. Think again about Jesus. Think about who he is and what he claims. For even the opponents of Christianity agree that the claims that Jesus makes to be uniquely the Son of God are unique claims. Now in verse 15, Paul unpacks this idea further when he says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, at first glance, that might seem to to contradict what Paul has just written and uh, say, well, actually, Jesus, I'm not saying that Jesus is the first created being. In the early centuries of the church, a a man called Arius, an Egyptian cleric, interpreted this phrase in exactly that way. 
And he argued that Jesus was the first created being, and therefore he wasn't fully God. And it caused a huge controversy in the church. It caused great division in the church. And there are modern-day RNs, notably Jehovah's Witnesses, who interpret this phrase in the same way, that Jesus was the, the first created being. But that is not how the Bible uses the term firstborn. Instead, the Bible uses the term firstborn to mean the one who has supreme status, the one who is the heir of everything. If you were firstborn, everything belonged to you. You were the heir. We see that the language of firstborn being used in that way in the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy 21.17 and Exodus 4.22. So when Paul describes Christ as the firstborn over all creation, he's not describing him as the first created being, but he's saying he is the one who exercises supremacy over all creation, that all creation belongs to him. And this becomes clear as Paul continues in verse 16 with that important word, for or because, because by him all things were created. Here is why he is God. Here is why he is supreme over all things. Because by him all things were created. Here's the the remarkable truth that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. That the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was also God who created all things. In a few weeks' time, we'll we'll celebrate Christmas. This may be the first mention of Christmas from the pulpit this year. But it's looming. At that time, that's what we'll think about. We will remember how the one who created all things became a human and entered the world as a baby and lived among us. We will sing low within a manger lies, he who built the starry skies. Or as a quaint old Carl puts it, behold the great creator makes himself a house of clay, a robe of human flesh he takes which he will wear always. This is the truth that stands at the heart of the Christian message. The creator of all things enters into the creation. Now, when Paul says he created all things, he means all things. As he continues, he created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He created all things in heaven, he says, the invisible. And this includes this, these four classifications, it seems, of heavenly powers. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. These perhaps seem to be gradations of angelic powers. And Paul is really saying here, from the least to the greatest in the invisible realm, Christ has created everything, all the heavenly powers. And he has created everything on earth as well. He has created everything that we see around us. He has created the visible everything. Then at the end of verse 16, he repeats the statement at the beginning of of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. Note those three prepositions, those three connecting words which Paul uses. All things have been created by him, 
All things have been created through him, and all things have been created for him. He is saying absolutely nothing exists that has not been created by Christ, through Christ, and for him. Whether that's invisible or visible, whether that is material or spiritual, Christ has created all things. To borrow from the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, he said, there's not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ does not cry, mine, mine. Absolutely everything belongs to him. But Paul's still not finished. And he continues in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. When Paul says he is before all things, he's reminding us again, he's not a creature. He's not a creature. He was there before anything was created. Arius famously said there was a time when he was not. Paul's saying, no, that is simply not the case. Because before anything came into being, the Son of God was there. The Son of God is eternal. More than that, he says, in him all things hold together. Not only did he create all things, he continuously sustains all things. Were he to withdraw his power for a split second, the whole of the created order would collapse. Of course, this magnifies the miracle of the incarnation still further. That the helpless baby in the manger in Bethlehem was at the same time sustaining the universe. Wow. The baby in the manger was at the same time sustaining the universe. Because when God became incarnate, he did not cease to be God. He did not cease to be God. Can we grasp this? No. No, we can't. But like Paul, we joyfully confess it. Like Paul, we want to sing it. That he is the creator of all things. And yet he became a man. He became a man. That brings us to the the second focus of this hymn, where Paul now begins to talk about Jesus' relationship with the new creation. Verse 18, he writes, And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, it's possible to read this and say, well, you know, Paul has spoken about Christ in these, these exalted terms, and, you know, he's the focal point of all creation, by him, for him, and through him all things were made. And, well, now he slips down a gear and he, he begins to talk about the church, how, how mundane. But Paul's not slipping down a gear. Paul's going up a gear. He's uh, raising his song an octave. Well, what's Paul telling us when he says that Christ is the head of the body of the church? Well, he's telling us, he says, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Again, we read this word firstborn. Paul previously used this word to declare Jesus' supremacy over the whole created order. Well, now he's using this word to tell us that he is supreme over the new creation as well. Why does the church exist today? Why did the church come into being 2,000 years ago? Why does it still exist 2,000 years later? 
Why does it continue to grow and circle the globe so that the church today has billions of members in every habitable corner of the globe? There's an answer, and it's the answer that Paul gives here, that Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning because he is the firstborn from among the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered death. But he didn't just conquer death for his own sake so that he could say, I have risen from the dead. It's for the sake of his people, the church. The church is not some organization. The church is not some institution. The church is a people bound together, bound to Jesus in the newness of his resurrection life. We are a people who have already begun to experience that resurrection power. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, we already experience the mighty power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead. That power is now at work in us, the church. The church is that evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that evidence that a new order has begun. The church is that evidence, as Paul goes on to say in verse 18, that in everything Christ will have the supremacy. He is the firstborn. He is supreme over the newly created order. And he emphasizes this still further in verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is why God in all his fullness became a man. So that through the shedding of his blood, he might reconcile to himself all things. Again, note the scope of this reconciling work. Once again, it includes all things, as Paul says, whether in heaven or on earth. Paul is saying here that everything in the entire created order is reconciled to God through Christ's death. What does he mean by that? Well, the word reconcile has two senses. In one sense, it means making peace between two parties who are in conflict. And we'll see how Paul develops that particular thought in verses 21 and 22. But the second sense in which that word is used is to pacify. If you reconcile something, you pacify it. In other words, on the cross, Jesus was making peace by bringing all things into submission to him, even the things that resisted him. Uh, Being a naive young boy from the country uh, and coming to to live in Belfast, I had to learn how uh, people in Belfast speak. And um, one of the things I discovered is that that little plug uh, that you use and put in a baby's mouth is called the dodie. Uh, So you you put the dodie in the baby's baby's mouth. Americans call it, of course they do, the pacifier. The pacifier. You put this in the baby's mouth and they are pacified. But not only them, everything is pacified. You've made it peaceful. And this is what Christ accomplished by the shedding of his blood on the cross. He pacified. He silenced. He overcame his enemies. And Paul will reiterate that in chapter 2 and verse 15. 
By his death, Jesus pacified everyone and everything that stood opposed to him in heaven and on earth. And he demonstrated this when he rose from the dead as the head of the new creation. The church is that sign that the new creation is underway. It is that sign that the new order has begun. And one day Jesus will come again. He will come again as the head of the new creation. And his pacification of everything will be made complete. On that day he will finally pacify everything that stands opposed to him. He will destroy sin in all its manifestations. He will remove every trace of corruption and he will make all things new. He will cast out everyone who has lived in opposition to his rule. And he will cast down Satan and his demons to their eternal destruction. And he will reconcile his people. He will bring his people, the church, those who have longed for his appearing, into their eternal reward. They will become citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. They will live with the Lord Jesus in new physical bodies, free from every blemish and consequence of the sin that we experience in this world. They will live with unbridled and unadulterated joy throughout the endless ages of eternity. Never again will God's people experience want, suffering, loss, sorrow, death. But the question that we each face this morning is that one of when Jesus returns to finally establish the new creation. Will we be pacified? Or will we be reconciled? Will we be pacified? Or will we be reconciled? There's this theme of reconciliation. The reconciliation of God's people that Paul now picks up. Where in verses 21 through to 23, he looks at how this affects our relationship with Jesus. He writes in verses 21 and 22, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Dear Paul speaks of the reality of what the Colossians once were and indeed of the reality of what we all are by nature. By nature, every one of us is alienated from God. The term alienated here really means that we're estranged from God and we're estranged from God because of our hostility to him. And Paul unpacks this when he continues that we are enemies of God in our minds. This is the reality of the human condition. In our minds, we have turned God into the enemy. We despise his righteousness. We despise his holiness. We despise his goodness. We despise his justice. We hate the good that he desires for each one of us. And instead, we translate that into a perverse and twisted idea of how God is actually trying to make us miserable because he's trying to curtail our freedoms. Why do we do that? Well, Paul says it's because of our evil behavior. We have turned God into the enemy because he is the one who is telling us what we do not want to hear. 
God's not saying to us, go ahead and you know, live how you please, indulge your, your sinful nature. Instead, God is telling us that in order to flourish in His world, we must live in His way. And we hate Him for it. We can dress that up in any kind of language we choose. But we actually hate Him for it. The philosopher Thomas Nagel writes, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. And Paul's really saying, Nagel speaks for each one of us. We are estranged from God because in our minds he is the enemy. In our minds, he's the one who's the problem. He's the one who's calling us to a life that we do not want to live. This morning, if you're not a Christian, the truth is it's not really because you have an intellectual problem. The problem is that you have a heart that's deliberately alienated from God. You don't like what he's telling you to do. In our individualistic age, we don't like the authority of someone who says, don't do that, do this. Why can I not be free to do as I want? God, why are you like that? The problem of alienation, however, is one that Paul reminds us that God has dealt with. For he has brought about reconciliation with us as enemies through his sons. Here is the wonderful message of the, of the gospel. The invisible God became visible. Even though he was the firstborn over all creation, even though he is the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made, he came into the universe as a man. And there by his death upon the cross, he accomplished that reconciliation. He made peace between God and man. How did he do this? Well, Paul tells us, he did that by the shedding of his blood, and through the shedding of his blood, he dealt with sin, so that he might present us holy in God's sight, that is, presented before God free from all impurity, he present, to present us before God without blemish, that is, faultless in every way, and to present us before God free from accusation, that is, with no charge that can stand against us. When in our minds God was the enemy, God, through His Son, made a way where we can have peace with God. Paul finishes this section by spelling out what this means for the Colossians and indeed for us. Where he writes, If you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul says really two things here. First, he says at the end of verse 23, there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. There's only one message that is the good news. It is that the Son of God became one of us and died upon the cross to demolish the sin barrier that exists between us and God. He says there's only one gospel that's to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven, for here is the only gospel that can save us. And secondly, he says, you need to continue in this. 
You need to continue in this gospel. You need to be firm and established in your faith, immovable in the hope that is given us in Jesus. Do not go after the extras that are on offer, but hold fast to your unswerving commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He's saying, think about it. Think about who Jesus is. He is the creator, by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made. Think about what he has done. He has, through his death, brought into subjection all that stands opposed to him. And he has opened up that way of peace between you and God. He has given proof of this through his resurrection from the dead. Paul says, what more could you need? What more can anyone add to this? He says, do not try to move beyond him. Do not try to move away from him, but remain firmly rooted in him. John Newton, famous author of Amazing Grace, wrote that the treasury of life and salvation in Christ is inexhaustible, like a boundless, shoreless, bottomless ocean. Like the sun which, having cheered the successive generations of mankind with his beams, still shines with undiminished luster, is still the fountain of light, and always has a sufficiency to fulfill innumerable millions of eyes in the same instant. We do not need extras. What we do need is to put our roots ever deeper into the Lord Jesus Christ. And to draw from those boundless resources that he gives us. To draw on him, to grow in him, to be rooted and established in him. That we might enjoy the fullness, the freedom, and the future that he offers to each one of us. May God bless his word to our hearts.